Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, the creator of the Left Pocket Project, which seeks to bring you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. On today's episode, Richard and I will continue our discussion of The Colonizer and the Colonized by Albert Memming. For those of you who haven't heard it yet, please be sure to go back and check out the previous episode, which covers part one of the text. By the way, just in case you haven't noticed, we have been expanding in our media domination. Just kidding. It's obviously not domination. We're a small DIY style podcast and we're operating on a very, very, very small budget. So when I say expanding our media domination, I just mean that now we're on Spotify and YouTube. So make sure you check us out on both of those mediums. Um, And whenever you have a chance, be sure to check out the content in other places as well. If you so choose, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, Spreaker, iTunes, and now Spotify and YouTube, among many other websites. Also, don't forget that this is more than just a podcast. We actually do a lot of historical education as well on social media. So check out things, for example, like our Left POC of the Week, where we cover a leftist of color from around the world in history, basically, uh, from any time period. And we we comment a bit about their past and their previous work that they've done um, and the impact that they've had on leftist discourse and activism. So anyway, before uh, we get started, I also just want to give a special shout out and thanks to all of our patrons and the people who have shared, liked, supported, commented on any of the content that I've put out or that Richard and I have both put out um, in recent weeks. So thanks so much again. And if you'd like to become a patron, be sure to go to patreon.com slash leftpoc, where you can donate a dollar or more toward our measly little budget. (laughs) It's a good one, though. Um, It's actually a decent budget to cover our needs at the moment, which is helpful. But obviously, for us to continue to expand, we need all the help we can get. Any little amount will help, actually. Um, So to give you a bit of an example, this is how our budget goes. Whenever we receive funds, first our budget goes to paying our assistants and paying our guests. So for example, whenever we have a guest, we pay not only the guest, but we also make a small donation in honor of our guest to the organization of his or her choice. We also provide funding for other podcasts. So we support other podcasts that we feel have um, a positive mission and are also talking about leftist issues that are important to all of us. We also send funds to uh, data storage. <laughs> and I'm joking because I say I say sending funds, but it really does feel like sending funds. I'm making a donation, for example, to Spreaker and SoundCloud for storage. I'm also making a, a, a donation to the web for storage. So again, appreciative of any, any, any donation you can make. And if you're unable to donate a dollar or more, please be sure to just check out the Patreon anyway. We post a lot of things like free books for us to discuss on Reading Revolution. And that way you can read along with us so you have access to the original text in full. Um, The other things that we post, for example, I have several interviews and talks that I've given elsewhere beyond Left POC where you can listen for free 
Um, all of our content also is always free. And this is another thing I just wanted to emphasize that's important. For this project in general, we always want to make sure that our content is 100% free. We don't believe in paywalls. We don't want anything hidden or charged technically for you to access it. That doesn't really make any sense with regard to our mission, which is, of course, to educate and share and learn about histories of leftists of color. So we certainly wouldn't want to limit people who don't have the funds from accessing this information um, and this community, to be honest. And so with all that said, I just wanted to say thanks so much again to those of you who have been able to donate and encourage those of you who haven't donated to think about giving us a dollar or more a month because we really do put all of your funds to good use. Um, so yeah, with that said, let's get started with the episode. Hi, everyone. This is Wendy. I'm here with Richard. And um, <clears throat> before we get started today, because we're going to do the second part of uh, Albert Memmi's Colonizer and the Colonized, I just want to say that um, it is hot here in Baltimore and I, there is an air conditioner on. And I'm also using a mic that I actually bought a long time ago but I hadn't actually put into use. I'm also recording in a different room. So my apologies if you hear a bunch of noise and my voice sounds different or the acoustics are a little bit echoey or weird, just getting that out of the way so that I don't receive a thousand messages from people saying, what is with the sound on the podcast this episode? Why is it weird? Because I get some of those messages and like, y'all, we're working with a really low budget. So if you want us to have like a full sound room and <laughs> fancy <laughs> equipment, feel free to donate a dollar or more on <laughs> patreon.com slash left POC. But this is a DIY operation. Like when I say DIY, I really mean DIY. Right now our Patreon donations are around on a good month, like 250 before they take out taxes and fees and all of these things. Um, and with that, I pay Richard, I pay my assistants, I pay for web storage, I pay for um, more web storage. I feel like a lot of it's web storage. Um, and I also pay our guests and I donate, I make a donation in the guest's honor to their organization of choice. So we actually take the money you guys give us and put them, put that money directly into the like everyday operations of the podcast, but also sort of like the community-based and political um, project that's inherent to the podcast and like why we do the project in the first place. So um, as I said, DIY, not super worried about sound quality because for us, the message is more important than the sound quality. But if you want the sound quality to be fancy, you know what to do. Richard, uh, how's it going? <laughs> uh, it's going good, good. I just want to thank the the patrons for joining us and, and all of our listeners. And uh, it's kind of a flying the plane and building it at the same time. And I appreciate all the people brave enough to, you know, climb on board with us and and be patient. <laughs> See, I'm laughing because I'm thinking about the plane that's like held together with duct tape right now, but we appreciate you boarding with us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Might be a little bumpy, but little, yeah, right, a little bumpy, but but we're we're all looking forward to getting there, and uh, and it, it, we all have a lot riding on it. So, right. like you uh, might see duct tape, but. The pilots have been properly trained. <laughs> <laughs> also in training, but we, 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 won't, we won't focus on that part. We know where um, the gears are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, how is everything else though besides our our rinky dink 
uh, detonate plane? What's going on with uh, you? I mean, uh, I've been taking a little bit of a break from Twitter and some of the news Healthy. cycles. So, like, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> been, it's been interesting. I've been engaging more with uh, more, I would say, slightly more apolitical people or people that uh, generally find themselves outside of political conversations. And it's been enlightening. Uh, it's been uh, an experience in a variety of ways. Uh, so uh, my reading has been immensely helpful in interacting and being able to listen and uh, not just kind of, you know, hoping, but all expecting. And then in my expectations, finding uh, really valuable insight from places I wouldn't have expected it before I started this journey. So that's been a very, very good experience and something I highly encourage other people and all our listeners to, to do when and where they can. That sounds much healthier than what I've been doing. Which is, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I have been on Twitter. I went back on Twitter. So I was like, I took a, I took a, a fake break. Um, I was gone for like two weeks. I wasn't on my main Twitter at Muse Wendy. I was doing left POC stuff though. Like I was still tweeting on left POC because I have to like, you know, this is at the end of the day, I have to keep content there. Um, but for the most part, I wasn't like, wasn't super engaged with the Twitter drama. And then people decided to say stupid stuff on air about um, kind of like downplaying white supremacy. And so I had to say something about that. Some of you may have seen that discussion um, slash debate, but I think that there's, I think for me, I'm a little bit tired of like having the same argument that involves trying to explain why uh, things for people of color matter on a bunch of different fronts. Like we need to put food on the table, but we also need to be like safe as we put food on the table, you know, like we have seems both like material and social needs. Huh? I was just saying, it seems like a reasonable expectation. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm not, I don't ask for much. I just ask for like not to be um, antagonized when I go to school or work or church or mosque or whatever, like fill in the blank. I'm saying me in this case as a collective of a variety of different people, different backgrounds. Um, but I think that those concerns are just as important as material concerns, because at the end of the day, I always say, you know, like, how can you have equal access and, and not just equal access, but like equal security of the resources that you gain through political action and things like that, if they're not administered equally across racial, ethnic, it kind of defeats the purpose. Um, this is one of the problems with the New Deal that historians have, you know, talked about a lot. And so I think, especially now that we see politicians like Bernie Sanders once again engaging the language from the New Deal era and people like AOC as well, um, making claims or, or I guess appeals to, to that history, which is really, I think, important. We also have to keep in mind the ways that things could be corrected and changed and made better. Um, and I don't think that... Uh, overlooking the threat of white supremacy in our fight for justice and equality is a good idea ever, at least if you plan on um, fighting alongside people of color who are very much a big part of this movement on the left in the United States and elsewhere. So them's, those, those, are my, those are my two cents. Um, yeah, I was going to say, can... <laughs> color is definitely an important part of the New Deal, and green was not the one that we really needed them to focus on as far as color-wise, <laughs> but it was, uh, at least I can appreciate the, you know, the the urgency for dramatic change, which yes. the, that, I think, is, uh, even if it's not adequate in as it's formalized in that particular document, then 
uh, it, it's moving us in the right direction. Right. Like this this time around, we don't want to have internment camps for people of color. And we would like to make sure that the resources are adequately and properly distributed across ethnic groups. Um, would be nice. But I know. But how dare I? Right. Right. Um, <laughs> clearly, I'm a class trader for caring about poor people of color. What a deal. Um, all right. So let's <laughs> moving on. We're going to be talking about part two of Albert Memmi's Colonizer and the Colonized, as I said earlier. This part, he actually gets into sort of the psychology and the material positions of the colonized. So in the first part, we talked about the colonizer. So as, as I mentioned before, the book is kind of split into two very clear parts. First half is on the colon, like first three fourths, actually. He spends a lot of time explaining the colonizer. And then the second part of the book is about the colonized. So the person who's sort of on the receiving end of the actions of the colonizer. And Richard and I had some thoughts about this. Richard, why don't you get us started just on your general overview um, your opinion on this half of the book. Yeah. And so uh, I'll just start by reminding all of us that, uh, you know, being critical of what we're reading is also part of what we're doing. We It's important that while we're uh, respectful and, you know, acknowledge the information and the valuable research and understanding that's gone on into a lot of the work that we've done, that we also view it with a, a critical eye for uh, both a modern context and then just in general to however the nuances of our own particular perspectives uh, influence it and in that light uh, we have kind of a the benefit of uh, this book being uh, much older than uh, some other texts or some current uh, theory and so we know where this particular author ended up and uh, we spoke a bit beforehand about how that probably uh, colored how he was able to uh, articulate the differences or the articulations in the experience of the colonizer and the colonized. And if you've listened to the first half, we made mention to uh, how uh, life turned out uh, for our author. And uh, it was uh, not necessarily the revolutionary uh, uh, glorious uh, outcome that you might hope for. <laughs> Yeah, and I think also, besides just knowing kind of what happened, like it, sometimes when you look at historical texts, it almost feels like you're like a an inverted fortune teller of sorts. <laughs> like, you know the future if you could go back into the past and tell that person. It's kind of a weird way to think about it, but that's what it always feels like when I read these things. Like, oh, I know what happens to you, or I know what happens in this revolution or whatever. Um, if only I could warn you, you know. Um, but I think that this part, also just sort of, for me at least, felt like a downer, not only because of what we know happens with Memi himself, but also because the tone is not hopeful, right? Like, it, you don't mm -hmm. feel like, I mean, he's transparent about this at the end, which we can talk about a bit, but like, he's not mm -hmm. saying that he has all the answers, um, which is kind of nice, actually. Like, it's interesting when you read these books, or, or even like speeches and whatnot, and sometimes you feel like they have to have an answer, right? And they have to have a solution for like what's going to be done to fix the problem. But I almost nice. appreciate the fact that he's, he doesn't have one. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but that also means that the tone of those section is much, it's like, it's not a triumphant one. And it's one where you feel like you don't know what to do after reading it. And I also kind of felt like 
Mm. I, I don't know. Like, I felt like he threw a lot of shade on colonized peoples um, mm. and in ways that I felt the judgment was like not necessarily fully warranted. I think he gives, I think he does at least acknowledge the fact that, you know, the colonized person has been programmed to fulfill some of the like character flaws that he draws out and talks about. But at the same time, you're just like, dude, come on, like <laughs> have some more hope or like have, have give them a little bit more credit. Um, the last thing I just want to say before we get into the text is like, it also felt like it was still about the colonizer, right? Like mm-hmm. it felt like it was still part one, but just like, I don't know. I felt like he still was talking a lot about the colonizer and their perspective of things, like what they're doing, why they're doing it. And less, I think, about the nature of being a colonized person. And perhaps I think if he had focused more on in-depth ways of what it feels like to be a colonized person, because he himself is technically at that point was a colonized person, Mm -hmm. it would have been nice to have that perspective be in greater depth. And I don't think he put in a lot of of that voice. You know, like I think it was still mainly like this is what the colonizer does to beat these people down and to make this person like this. But you, it's it felt like to me that he was like kind of reiterating the silencing of colonized peoples as well, even though he himself obviously doesn't like the colonizer. But it was like he was it was like he was he was like not letting the colonized really speak in the text very much. No, I think that's a, I think you uh, captured that well. And it reminds like the way I would say it in that he basically, yeah, in the, when talking about the colonized, it's still as though he's talking about through the colonizers actions. And, and I kind of, I think some of the text kind of, uh, I guess, kind of talks about that in some ways. And I think you pointed it out earlier that, uh, some of the stuff in here is self-critical, uh, it, like he's pointing out flaws that he recognizes in himself, in his own character, and his own behavior, and some of that also comes through directly in the writing, I think, in that, like, uh, some of uh, he, at one point, and uh, I think we'll talk about it a bit more later, but, you know, kind of talks about how when a colonized person is writing uh, that experience and how that uh, affects them and both the the professional or career struggle and then the internal you know soul or what is a man struggle that that takes place and and kind of talks about those and uh, i think a lot of that comes through in this part too through essentially writing through still a somewhat colonizer lens i think that you talked about as well right because he's kind of like a he's like a marginalized colonizer if that makes sense like he because he, he mentions mm-hmm. a lot in the first part how um and north africa in general um you could say that you know people from europe who weren't from france for example who were like italians maybe or from other parts of europe and then also in his case as a jewish person he sort of and he he identifies certain jewish people as complicit with the act of colonization um, by the French in his case. So it's kind of, he's in, he's like on the fence in a lot of ways because he can see multiple sides. Um, and I agree with you that that sort of comes through again in this section. So the first part of the second half on the colonized is called the mythical portrait of the colonized. And it's basically he kind of, I mean, in the book, he has a very like clear parallel structure. So as you may remember, if you listen to the first part of this, 
when he starts the book, he talks about the colonizer and he opens with the myth of the colonizer that's constructed primarily by the colonizer himself and then sort of reinforced in the colony. Um, and so in this section, he starts once again with an idea of a myth, but in this case, it's the myth of the colonized. But the problem is that this myth of the colonized is also created by the colonizer. So there's, there's the myth of the colonizer that's created by the colonizer. And then there's the myth of the colonized that's created by the colonizer. So you automatically start this section, as I said before, with like the perspective of the colonizer at the end of the day. So he talks about what I, what I thought was really interesting, even though this is just like the first line of this section, what I thought was interesting is that he makes a parallel structure between a colonized person and the proletariat, and then the colonizer and the bourgeoisie. And what, what's interesting about that sort of setup is that he's kind of, it's almost like he's making us think about um, the colonizer and colonized positionality as different from that of just class, which I think is important. It's like an important intervention here. He kind of touches on it in the first part where he talks about like how poor colonizers can be just as bad, if not more aggressive sometimes in a colonial position because they, they have to find a way to like maintain their power more. Um, their, their power is not set in the same way as it is for like the upper echelon of the colonizers. So it's, it's interesting to me that he like once again reminds us that this class structure discussion is important, but it has to go deeper than that when we're talking about a colonial relationship. Um, and so he, that's why he doesn't like try to superimpose sort of um, proletariat and bourgeoisie or upper class and lower class um, language onto the colonized and colonizer position. But the myth that he brings up is one of laziness, which is like, it creates this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So if you assume that people or the colonized in this case are lazy, if that's your assumption and that's the myth that you create, even though there's plenty of evidence to the contrary, like they're literally doing all the work in the colony, you know, like and we see a similar situation when we talk mm -hmm. about slavery and things like that, right? Like how can you look at these people working for free or for very little or like living under your thumb basically and doing everything for you, serving you, making your life run and then say that they're the lazy ones. And then what happens is when you create this myth that is completely in conflict with the reality, it allows you to then continue to assert power because you can always fall back on the myth. So he's like, if you continue to see the colonizer or the colonized as lazy, then the colonizer can continue to exert his power over this person that he doesn't see as competent to do the job that he could do, right? Or that he positions himself to do. He says, well, we can't trust them to do it. They're lazy. So I have to do everything myself. I'm the only one who can hold this position of power. And, and it just like keeps, it keeps the cycle going by virtue of the myth. But yeah, no, I think that you, you raised some interesting points and he also did. And I think you capture, I think what was also important, which is that we're still looking at it through the lens of the, the colonizer and, or looking at the colonizer through the lens of the colonizer and how generally destructive that is uh, mm -hmm. to the, the whole social to the whole social dynamic at almost every level uh both uh, and he starts to talk about it but both at the inter the i guess the i don't know inter interracial and then intraracial relationships or in this case uh, you know between the colonized and the colonizer uh the 
the I don't add, if we want to add intra and inter to colonize, but uh, that same kind of concept of how this this myth of the colonized is destructive to not just how the the colonizer sees the colonized and that you know as the the kind of things that you laid out there as well but uh, how colonized people see each other mm. and that is i think part of uh what makes uh i think also what led to part of the the conclusions of not really having solutions because these are these are large problems that are systemic that are a result of a system that are out of the hands of the victims and, and large parts and so uh, that's where some creativity imagination and uh, determination comes in to kind of address those and uh, it's easy to get wrapped up in the negative stuff that he lays out and uh, not remember that that's the opportunity that we have is you know as long as we're breathing we still have a chance to come up with something and so uh, from that section the, that you kind of covered over there um, one of the other things that uh, he talks about is like the admiration of the colonizer and how that you can get approval and essentially uh, it plays on a proximity to power and I think that was one of the things that he highlighted that I found valuable or that I think reflected well and the the kind of crushing effect it has on the colonized uh, to have that effect of appealing towards such uh, inherently destructive construction of themselves in order to appeal to the power structure uh, above that's putting them there. Yeah, I think the power the power dynamic is really important. Like all, I mean, it's, it runs throughout the book. Um, but I think the other thing is just that this. It's it's almost like because the power it, it's again we talked about this last time but it's like there's no way around it there's no way to fix it kind of it's very it I don't I don't like saying that it's fatalistic because I think there is a little bit of hope but for the most part as you're reading it you're like who who's gonna be if the colonizers are messed up if the colonized are messed up because of the colonizers and then even any potential that the colonized have to reform their society and make it better and freer is limited by virtue of their having been programmed through the system. Then like, I don't know, but I think that there's this in this section too, in the first part of um, the part on the colonized, one of the things that he makes very clear as well is like the way that these systems once again, sort of create their own meaning and importance. So he mentions the police. This is on page 126. He says that whenever, quote, whenever the colonizer adds, in order not to fall prey to anxiety, that the colonized is a wicked, backward person with evil, thievish, and somewhat sadistic instincts, he thus justifies his police and his legitimate severity. And so, like, he's basically saying that, again, these myths, this idea sort of helps maintain the power structure. So if you have the myth of someone as being lazy, as being wicked, as being somewhat naturally, inherently bad, right, inherently evil, then it it helps you maintain that. Because he talks about the protectorate to this idea of, I mean, we can think, talk about like Puerto Rico, for example, which is literally a U.S. protectorate. And I think that this this idea of the colony that he, or the colonized that he creates in the text is one that is a hollow figure that only kind of, ex it's almost like they they both are hollow figures. The, ho the colonizer depends on the colonized for his position of power and the colonized is 
it exists only, or this person exists only to reinforce the power of the colonizer. It's like everything goes back. They should, he should just call it the colonizer. Like there's no, I don't know <laughs> if there's a colonized story here, but anyway, continuing. Um, but I think this, this is also interesting because he, in addition to talking about the fact that these myths create uh, or help maintain the power structure, the other thing that helps maintain the power structure is the continual dependence, which is also something that like we see very much in contemporary situations with places like Puerto Rico, where they're, if they have any sort of economic issues or environmental issues, they don't have anywhere else they can go for assistance. They have to rely on, like they literally are tied to the United States, whether they like it or not, because if they try to get assistance from other countries that are close by, like Cuba, for example, they're basically, I mean, the U.S. is going to go to war with them. They're already abusing Puerto Rico, but the point is that they're not at will to engage in sort of like um, international connections if they need aid they still they have no other choice and so i think that 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 idea that he talks about in in this part as well about the dependence and the reliance upon the the metropole or like the main country that's running things reinforces the power structure but that power structure depends entirely on ideas that are complete lies because it's not like puerto rican people can't just as again i keep going back to the puerto rico example but it's not like it's not like they cannot run their own societies. I think he's a little bit less hopeful that they can, but I think in the instance of like places at the beginning of a colonial relationship, if there were a way to interrupt that early on, then there would be, I think, more potential for these these countries to run themselves, but also a complete inability for the colonizer to lie and say, we have a reason to be here. We have to stay because without us, you can't function. Yeah, I think uh, later in the text, there's some recognition of uh, that he's somewhat done that throughout the text thus far. And so he it, there uh, we'll get to it. But I think there's some uh, but I, there's some ad, uh, admission to that. But uh, we'll cover that. But some from this kind of section through one the 120s, some of the quotes that I think are important uh, are the pieces of text that I found important. And kind of, I guess, I related to in some ways was talking about the assimilation, attempting to assimilate to mm -hmm. the uh, the colonizers' culture and you know expectations and some so on and so forth. And uh, it talks about the the exorbitant price which uh, it's got to pay and that you'll never finish owing. Mm -hmm. You know, and mm -hmm. the, that also reminded me uh, now, obviously, my political perspective has changed a lot, but some of the social stuff still applies with uh, uh, former President Obama and like uh, how being, you know, an Ivy League grad uh, working at the paper and like professor or all these types of things like none of that was enough. It was still like not it was still passable for somebody like Donald Trump to challenge his, uh, you know, academic credentials. Mm -hmm. And like, so like that, I, I, I sense that the, for me, the relation is, is that like, there's always this, no matter how much you fulfill their expectations and roles and do it even better than them, you're still, it's always, uh, you know, easy to undermine or subvert or question or, you know, delegitimize. And uh, I think the cap that's one of the things that I saw in this section that he mentioned. And then 
also talked about uh, the quote is a man straddling two cultures is rarely well seated and the colonized does not always find the right pose and everything is mobilized so that the colonized cannot access the doorstep so that he understands and admits that his path is dead and assimilation is impossible. Uh, it's the colonized who is the first to desire the uh, assimilization and is the colonizer who refuses it to him. So mm-hmm. the, the colonizer or the colonized is making this effort to do what the colonized is saying colonization is for only to find out that they're going to be rejected because the, the real purpose of colonization, the re- the basically uh, the celebration of mediocrity necessitates the subjugation of them, no matter how hard they try to assimilate. And right. so that is like, you mentioned the defeatist attitude. I under like that was, I think captured in those parts. And I think by 127, uh, we get, I don't know, we're going to call it light, but, uh, or a solution <laughs> or anything like that. But he mentions, you know, uh, basically under the realization of these conditions, Baldwin's, you know, uh, being semi or being conscious as a black man in America is being in a constant rage. Uh, revolt is the only way out of the colonial situation. The colonized realizes it sooner or later. His condition is absolute and cries for an absolute solution, a break and not a compromise. And uh, that's then when they're confronted with the, the logistical situation of the likelihood of success of a revolt and challenged with coming up with a revolutionary ideology that encompasses enough of a population to actually execute the types, the types of uh, radical reforms or, you know, non-reformist reforms that are required. I think that that made me think about like, I mean, the first part of what you said makes me think a lot about this idea of just moving the goalposts all the time. Right. It kind of feels like that, like there's the colonizers in a, a constant uphill battle, no matter how much he masters the language, no matter what school he, like, if he somehow manages to go to school beyond the colony, like in Europe or whatever. Um, And this is why you see so many cases of, like, if there are, when there are revolutions in these colonized spaces, in the colonial space, most of them are led initially by people who were educated in Europe, for example, like in the case of Angola, Mozambique, et cetera, the, the countries that I study, the people who led the revolutions in many cases, like who were literally were like, educating the larger population were people who were much closer to the colonizer, to be honest. They were very close. They were like one step away from being, um, you know, considered quote unquote equal with the colonizer, save the, the basic fact that they were colonized, right? They were colonial subjects. They were black Africans. Like they didn't have, and there was no way to kind of like assimilate their way up because regardless of what skills they possessed or knowledge they had or intelligence or language domination, whatever they could, they weren't seen as valid um, just by virtue of, of not being the colonizer. And so I think that proximity to power is what kind of, and then just like you're, it's almost like, again, the Caliban situation, which I raised last time as well, but mm. this idea where like you're learning to curse in the language of the person who controls you, right? That's the language that mm-hmm. you have. That's the rubric that you have to work with. And so in some ways, I think that proximity to to the colonizer um, in some ways kind of instigates, lights the fire even more. Because they say, I'm, I'm better than you. You know, like I'm smarter than you. I have more credentials than you. And yet I'm I'm on the bottom. Like that's not right, you know? And luckily, I mean, in 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 many of these cases, um, if not like ninety nine percent of them, they were 
building these revolutions on, on, on the basis of like equality. They weren't just doing it because they wanted to be equal with uh, or, or replace, I should say, they didn't necessarily want to replace the colonizer. They wanted equality for their people. And I think a lot of, that's why a lot of them pursued very explicitly leftist um, political ideologies in the attempts to found new countries. So there's a lot of stuff going on in this chapter that I think connects, we can easily connect back to uh, moments in history. Um, but also one of the parts that I, I appreciated as well from this section is the idea of talking about um, the individual, since we're talking about, you know, the what people do and still it's not enough, right? He also talks about the fact that perhaps the reason that's not seen as enough is because colonized peoples are never seen as individuals, right? They're not seen as individuals or people who are who are pursuing goals and and meeting those goals and like whatever. Like they're not seen as fulfilling anything that's related to their individual development and enrichment, they're just seen as like a mass. And it doesn't matter to the colonizer whether that person has a degree or not, whether that person is, you know, smarter than them or has greater skills or whatever. It, none of that, sorry, none of that matters because they don't see that the colonizers don't see the colonized as individuals. So they, he says, for example, that the colonizer or the colonized, excuse me, is depersonalized, which is like an interesting, it's not just, it's not just dehumanized, but it's like the personal, you're not, you're no longer an individual. You no longer have like interiority, right? Like there's no, there's no interior thought. It's like, that's basically what he's saying by the way that, that they just, he describes how they see the colonized peoples, which I thought was really powerful. Yeah, and I mean, the, the what it relates to me, the, or I processed what you were talking about was through, uh, I don't know if I shared it here or not, was uh, essentially this kind of uh, framing of, uh, like, the right in the U.S. tends to uh, appreciate uh, marginalized people at the individual level, in that, like, they can find an individual marginalized person that they're like, oh, this person is, you know, good despite what i all these horrific things i say about the the group as a mass mm -hmm. and then the the left in the u.s tends to uh see uh like less they they do they end up doing more of the depersonalization and seeing more of the mass and and giving general good qualities but kind of also applying a lot of what uh, uh we've covered is applied to the colonized population and the general hegemonic beliefs of the colonizer and the colonized for that matter. But uh, I think the, what you raise, I think is, is important and relates to that in that uh, the, the, the stripping of the individualism of, of the, of the kind of internalism and all of that is by both sides plays out in there's this external thought that they can apply to these marginalized groups uh, and, and kind of, comment on and keep them maintained that it fits into the the kind of hegemonic myths that we were talking about before in which case like so one of the ways i see this articulated or kind of uh you know i see this manifested is uh, you know when they talk about the black vote or the you know uh the hispanic vote or uh what one when we group and segment people in these types of ways that doesn't recognize the individual identities and the the wide varieties of groupings within that larger group. And uh, I think, as you point out, and uh, as the text points out as well, how that 
structure or that kind of framing and that understanding of the situation results in uh, a very depersonalized and, de and something that goes beyond dehumanization. And I think that, that the destructive force that plays is, is, as you point out and mentioned, is a very important part that we get from here. So the next section is situations of the colonized. And as it sounds like, it's more about sort of material conditions. Um, he still talks a lot about what's going on with the, like, the way the colonized is created in the mind of the colonizer. But I think in this section, he starts to lay the groundwork for like what's happening to this person in terms or the colonized in terms of like economic and social um in a way that's a little bit not, it's not just the psychology, right? And so one of the things that he talks about that I thought was really applicable to contemporary things is the fact that he says, for example, on page 135, sort of towards the bottom, he says that the most serious blow suffered by the colonized is being removed from history and from the community. And it's like, holy shit, like, yeah. I mean, this is, this is obviously... Oh. I mean, it seems it seems so basic, right? But it's like mm -hmm. such a powerful way to say that because it's not just that your land is being taken away, your rights are being taken away, your voice, like everything about your being is being taken away by this colonial state, but also the fact that like the memory is is erased and changed, and like we, I think we can think of so many examples in the present, the recent past as well, where we've seen. A, a complete erasure of that history, but also an attempt to break up the community that existed beforehand, right? Like it's a very, mm. it's again, it's a very plainly said thing, but it's also one that I think is very powerful. And then he goes on to say on 136, around 136 and 137, um, he talks about the fact that, um, you know, this is because he's all, because the sub, the colonized is always an object at least according to this sort of framework, right? The colonized is always rendered, rendered an object, so he can't even participate in the making of his own history anymore. It, it's like out of his control, out of his or her hands, right? He says mm -hmm. he has forgotten how to participate actively in history and has he no longer even asks how to do so. No matter how briefly colonization may have lasted, all memory of freedom seems distant. It's like... Yeah, like you can't, it's almost, I mean, again, I don't necessarily agree with this, but I think mm -hmm. that it's a powerful way to reflect on what I think is done to, like, for, if you're looking at the colonized as an object, like the colonizer would, you can see why he would say that, like, their history is erased, but they're also not even allowed to engage in the creation of a history. Like, it, no matter what you do, it's not going to, it's, it's not going to be around in the end. And then the last thing I just wanted to point out, a few, like a paragraph down. He also talks about something that once again, I think is super relevant for our discussion of colonization in the present that yes, is still going on around the world, including in the United States. Like just a quick, a gentle reminder that, you know, the United <laughs> States is still a settler colony. Um, but he says here that for each colonizer killed, hundreds or thousands of the colonized have been or would have been exterminated. And like that makes me think so much about news coverage, right? So when we when we talk about the death, for example, of one policeman, and then we have hundreds of thousands of people being killed worldwide, not just in the United States, but like annually by police, especially in places like Brazil. Um, and then you look at those numbers and you're like, but when one police officer dies, which, you know, like loss of life is sad regardless, but 
that person has power way more than the victims that they commit brutality against in the streets, you know? And, and of all the people who sign up for it. something like that, I mean, exactly, yeah, like they get a paycheck for running around with a gun and and defending basically property, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't get a pay. I always say like I don't get a paycheck for being black. Like none of their victims get a paycheck for being black or indigenous or poor. Fill in the blank, right? In those so same dangerous neighborhoods that they have to patrol, like, right? Which, like, they maintain. Around. Like it's again, it's just the dependency thing. You know, like they create a need for themselves, right? Like. Mm-hmm. We keep your community oppressed and then we create a, an environment that where people are are engaging sometimes in violent activity. And then we say, oh, see, these people are naturally inherently violent. Therefore, we have to police. Like, it's just a cycle, right? Um, a cycle built on myths. And I think that like their stories, their histories, if you will, like are always told. Like we know, we know the names of the police officers who are slain. At least in the past, that was like what we focused on. I mean, we wouldn't even hear the names of people whom they murdered. Nowadays, it's a bit different, thank goodness. But it what what stays in the mind and gets the most attention is always the perspective of the person with power. And so in this case, like, I mean, I think even for example of Israel Palestine, very distinctly in this case, because we when there are like hundreds of Palestinians being killed, dying, being deprived of rights um, in like, let's say one one settlement space, right? In one area, because I know it's bigger than hundreds in, in like, if we're in the grand scheme of things, but let's just say one area. We hear about the, the rocket that was launched that like hit half a building in Israel that wasn't occupied, right? Like there was nobody living there. And then we're here, we hear that about that for days and days and days and days. And then the response by the Israeli government is disproportionate to this small infraction that was actually a defense mechanism. It wasn't even like, it wasn't like an instigation, right? Um, so it's very, uh, the way that this is weighted, the way stories are weighted is also wrapped up in this sort of colonial and colonized or colonizer and colonized relationship. I had... When you were describing the the kind of total destruction, annihilation of uh, and connection to culture and all, all the history and all the aspects, this is something I had as a black person in the U.S. had had a connection to or an understanding of through the history of slavery, but hadn't understood it really through colonization. Like I guess I kind of thought about it, thinking about Mesoamerica and the little the little bit of studying I'd done about what had transpired there with the various uh pre-existing indigenous peoples and colonization there but uh i hadn't really thought about it in the framing and context of colonization and so this text helped me for help provide some of that for me i think which was uh valuable he says uh, that uh sooner or later than the the potential oh, sorry what page are you on oh uh 143 okay go ahead uh, that sooner or later the potential rebel falls back on traditional values. This explains the astonishing survival of the colonized family. The colonial superstructure has real value as a, as a refuge. It saves the colonized from the despair of total defeat, and in return, it finds confirmation in a constant inflow of new blood. The young man will marry, will become a devout or devoted father, reliable brother, responsible uncle, and until he, he takes his father's place, a respectful son, everything has gone back into the order of things, and revolt and conflict have ended in a victory for parents and tradition. And so earlier we talked about 
how one of the kind of ideas that he provides for us uh, is, is the idea of revolt. And by 143, he's already kind of poo-pooing the idea with uh, this, right. essentially <laughs> saying that uh, then sooner or later after, uh, you know, trying to, you know, raise class consciousness and spur on uh, some sort of revolt in some way or whatever, uh, that uh, the rebel finds or other potential rebels or any potential rebel realizes that there's a, a certain security in uh, kind of supporting and reestablishing the status quo. And like, it's not just security, but it also seems to start to reflect many of the things that they were fighting for. So like in, in a state of revolt or in a state of uh, rebellion or revolution or whatever, whatever the case particularly may be, uh, normal quote unquote life, you know, being a good father, brother, all those things that he lists kind of fades and you become this, you know, a, a war nation and you, in conflict and, uh, you start to deal with those types of issues. And so that then just merely returning back to the oppressive status quo uh, seem, can have a sort of security in a feeling of affirmation. And then also there's a uh, a reward in it by the system because that's exactly what they need. And uh, bringing people uh, willingly and hopefully back into the flock is uh, the most effective way to maintain and to secure the colonization rather than having to exterminate uh, any potential person because they're as long as they're still being used as workforce anyway. Right. And like what a dark coming of age this is, right? Like as he describes the colonial family, which you laid out a bit, or the colonized family, I should say. Um, Towards the end of that, he says, quote, the young man is ready to assume his role as the colonized adult, that is to accept being an oppressed creature. It's like, geez, like it, he doesn't even, I mean, he, he, the fact that he calls the young man who's come into being a colonized adult, he switches then from using human, human terms, young man, adult, to then creature, right? Mm -hmm. He just, he completely strips, he's like basically, when you're supposed to be asserting yourself as an independent being, right? You've become an adult. You may at this point get a job or have a family for yourself or whatever, fill in the blank. You then, it's like an inverted coming of age. Instead of becoming uh, an independent being, an independent human being, you become a creature. You become a dependent creature. And it's like, so I think the the visual of that is also really interesting um, and important because I, it, as you said, you know, this this idea of maintaining the status quo sometimes feels for the colonized more comfortable. Um, and even sometimes the end of the revolt means going back to that or could mean it can be a risk of going back to that status quo that feels more. Um, but like more safe at the end of the day, you know. Yeah. And in and sometimes in practicality and in the and for the colonizer, they try everything they can to make it this way. It it becomes safer like in the in the most literal of senses beyond just the comforts but the actual you know circumstances of threats to your life on a daily basis become uh at least more gradual and uh you know subversive or like uh, under the surface rather than in your face and you know gun threats on a regular basis you know it's only when i cross the wrong uh part of town or this you know when i interrupt the wrong group of people over 
in this dominant area that, that I'm facing the situation versus uh, the, the fear of uh, both government and random, uh, you know, in this general disorder as a resultant of a, a government or a, an oppressor out of control. Just going back a bit, because um, we didn't talk about this, but I think it connects to this idea of like not only revolt, but potentially becoming a man or like an adult in these circumstances. If you go back a little bit to page 140, 141, he mentions a lot about the idea of citizenship and nationality and like how mm. the colonized is removed from any potential of accessing that like i'm laughing just because we think a lot when we, when we talk about anti-colonial movements we talk a lot about the creation of the independent nation and like you know there's often language about creating a new man or a new a new society and all of, all of that um and how a lot of these movements in the earlier stages rely on a sense of of um you know, like a, a nationality or a shared ethnic community of some sort um, that often is being articulated through an idea of like citizenship or an official community, right? A recognized community. Um, and I think his work and also some work of other anti-colonial scholars um, and thinkers who are writing around this time, it, it often kind of plays with this idea of like, is nationality what we want? Is it not what we want? And, you know, also conflicts with um, some people on the left who are saying that, you know, nation building and nationhood is not exactly the way we need to go. We need to have a more internationalist view. There's sometimes conflict um, and it's seen as like racialized chauvinism or ethnic based chauvinism to have a nation built on, like we say, like ethno state. Right. Um, and those are those are some tensions that are that arise around this time. I'm just pointing them out because I think it's an important like historical point. Um, but also just because for him, this also I think builds into this idea of you not being a fully like a fully recognized or fully um, actualized man or adult because you don't even have you don't have roots in a state of any sort, right? You're kind of stateless, even though you have grown up in this place, even though this is the land that you live in and that you know, it's it's not, you as a being are not recognized as having a place, you know, you're still the subject of some other state. And so it's like, you can't, you're not even, you're not even a man in the, in the symbolic sense of the nation. You're like, I mean, there's, there's often like, the other thing I hear a lot is um, the colonized state is a feminized state, right? This idea about um, sort of, power dynamics between the male and the female is often used as a kind of um, metaphor for colonial relationships. And so he does this a little bit with this idea of adult and creature, right? If you don't have a real sense of citizenship, if you don't have a nationality, if you're stateless, if you're placeless, you don't have any way to assert power in this stateless, nebulous place, then that also takes away from your humanness, right? Um, but I thought that was inter an interesting sort of discussion and set of thoughts around this idea of, of place and belonging. Uh, so uh, in uh, pages uh, about from 151 to 154, uh, and sorry if uh, some of my other pages were off, they might have come later in the text, uh, but this one should be on point and it discusses basically how the writer embodies the the colonized person that feels like a foreigner in their own country and he kind of expresses it with a particular use of the term bilingualism 
and uh, like he talks about how people wonder uh, why the the colonized doesn't have this cult the this literature of their own and all these things and so uh, it kind of builds off a lot of what Wendy was talking about as well and talks also about like the class element that we uh, started off with a little bit about uh, whether what how class plays a role to access to resources and uh, kind of does uh, does a little bit there but some of the things that stuck out were to me that he says uh, one of the reasons why the these uh, the colonized don't have great literature in their own uh, language is he says quote people are uncultured and do not read any language based saying that in general at the time that a large portion of people just didn't read a large portion of the population was illiterate and then the bourgeoisie and the scholars listen only to that of the colonizer and only one natural solution is left and that's to write in the colonizer's language and so uh, this is kind of what we were talking about before as well in, in that you're left with nothing but to use the language of the colonizer, whether it be as uh, when he printed out before cursing them or uh, praising them or, you know, uh, even interacting with uh, other colonized people, it becomes an expectation or a, uh, you know, a, a commonality among those among colonized that there's this expectation to use the language of the, uh, in this case, the colonizers and the, and how that changes the dilemma that he's talking about before, uh, which is essentially there's kind of a, a, a more professional or practical dilemma and the more of a spiritual or uh, soul dilemma about like who you are as a man and then who you are as a man in society is as far as professionally or existing and and surviving mm -hmm. uh, and then one of the other sections one of the other quotes that stuck out to me was uh, uh when he was talking about this kind of the nature of the relationship between the colonized writer and an audience is uh, do they forget that they're addressing the same public whose tongue they have borrowed however the writer is neither unconscious nor ungrateful nor insolent as soon as they dare speak what are they going to tell them other than of their malaise and of revolt you know it's mm -hmm. like you, you the only thing the colonized person can think of it, to use with this language that they have to master in order to write literature that can be taken in the pro professional uh context is the very messages that the colonizer can accept like not just doesn't want to or uh you know or inconvenient or anything it's like these messages are they challenge the very ability for the colonial relationship to exist. Mm -hmm. And so they become not only a threat to the colonizer as an individual, but a threat to the colonial project and then uh, get treated as such, basically. And so that's, I think in that section, I think that was pretty important. And then you also covered a little bit about this, but he captures how language covers he uses the example of the french language it's not just an efficient instrument with which to communicate but it also is like he says a miraculous chest in which are heaped upon discoveries and victories writers moralists philosophers scholars heroes adventures and just 
the the reference of the language itself pulls upon all of that all of that history all of that that great breadth of experience and when you strip a colonized people of that you're not just stripping them of some words to describe things so you know it's like you know if you take a german if you take away german from a german person you don't just take away schadenfreude or the ability to you know to say the word or anything like that you also take away a culture thing and in the case of the the colonized the, that was just a word that came to mind so it's, <laughs> don't don't pay any mind to the colonial relationship with that <laughs> that's just like it. from german, german <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh just the yeah again just where it came to mind but uh just in that like you it's when you take away a language you're taking away so much more than just a language mm -hmm. and like and so uh, uh indigenous people in the united states uh you know uh, stolen people from africa and colonized people around the world uh, have experienced this in various ways and degrees uh but i think there's a commonality in the experience of that that whole that's kind of left when you're in a community and uh, that's been colonized or stripped of those types of things and then you're also juxtaposed or cohabitating or coexisting with a colonizer people that still have those and don't and then on an individual social level don't recognize that gap mm -hmm. and it's a big gap i mean it's it's like a it's as you said it's connected to culture it's connected to like the way you think of time and space and family and so many things as you said mm -hmm. it's not just a word it's it's a way of being like language becomes a way of being in many cases um a, a significant one in fact i think the other like one other part that's close by to the things that you were just mentioning that i think is interesting as well that we do hear all the time and it's it's like disgusting that this is coming back is this idea of well what would have happened if the colonizers didn't save the colonized right what would happen if if the colonizers hadn't um, you know, created new technologies for these backwards, you know, indigenous peoples in Africa and the Americas, right? Like this, I mean, it's, it's a garbage way of thinking, but there are people who, like, there was a guy who wrote an article, I want to say in 2016 or 2017, like literally, you know, this man went through college and his master's and PhD and was a professor and his ass <laughs> spent all that money and time to write an article basically saying that colonization helps the colonized. Um, and mm. that we, you know, like colonized people needed the things that they, that they, the colonizers were magnanimous enough to bring to them. And I was like, dude, how are you still employed? Like, I mean, it was, it was really egregious and I honestly don't know how he's still employed if, but anyway. Um, it's a more popular the, sentiment the, than you'd think is one of the things is like, you'd is. be surprised how many people think that and like, they don't really want to say it because whenever they say it out loud, it sounds like that but yeah. they're, like, they, it they stupid, it sounds like. in that experience and that i've mentioned at the top of the show about uh interacting with more apolitical people or people outside of those political circles they don't have a lot of those filters and so they say some of those things and you're just like oh wow you you are one hardcore you know colonizer like wow but it's, worse. it's worse when people who are educated say these things to me because mm -hmm. like i expect for for someone if you have read about colonization colonial mm -hmm. stuff you know what they did and the abuses that colonizers enacted and so like how can you fix your mouth to say that it's also i mean we hear this a lot in conservative 
rhetoric about how like black people wouldn't have been better would have been better off or because of slavery we're better off right i hear this Mm -hmm. a lot from conservatives and i'm like next time you're enslaved tell me how that is (laughs) like (laughs) tell me tell me how how it goes for you guys but until then keep your fucking mouth shut and you know like i just it's 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 the audacity um of people who say these things and like don't and and who are educated and who know the history or you would expect have learned that history and for them to still say this it's just awful and like i think that you know around the same time i remember when the article came out and i posted something that like marine le pen has said she's a you know the french right-wing politician she ran for president a few years ago um she's over the national front but just again a far-right fascist party in france and she always said stuff like this. She was like, you know, without without France, what would these North African heathens have done with themselves, you know? And so mm-hmm. Memi addresses this this thought process uh, back in the 50s when he wrote this. And he says, uh, he's around, this is around page 156, 157. He says, the question of whether the colonized, if let alone would have advanced at the same pace as other peoples has no great significance. To be perfectly truthful, we have no way of knowing. And he keeps going. He says, the colonized people are not the only victims of history, um, but the historical misfortune peculiar to the colonized was colonization. He then continues to add on this by saying basically that not only do we have no way of knowing, and not only is colonization like a massive point in their history that changed everything. So there's really no way to like go back and figure out what could have been, right? He basically says here that this idea, right, of people saying, well, didn't the colonizer build roads and hospitals and schools, by the way, none of which the colonized peoples had access to most of the time, right? So like you built stuff, but you built stuff for you and your people and not for us. But he Mm -hmm. says this reservation amounts to saying that colonization was positive after all, for without it, there would have been neither roads nor hospitals or schools. Why must we suppose that the colonized would have remained frozen in a state in which the colonizer found him, right? And he also says after, like his final point on this is he says, after having shut the colonized out of history and having forbidden him all development, the colonizer asserts his fundamental and complete immobility, right? So like this idea that like literally everything is frozen. If you, if, Mm -hmm. if the colonized had not been left to their own devices and like let them do whatever they want and you know um i guess like advance i don't like that word in this case but let's just stick with the tone of the piece if they (laughs) advance their own pace we don't know what could have happened but it may have been greater than what the colonizers gave them and again gave them is not the right word either but going with the framework like (laughs) it's not I mean, first, again, it's not, it wasn't for the colonized to use. So most of the time, the roads and the hospitals and the schools, the colonized peoples were banned from them, or they were, they had segregated spaces that were insufficient in terms of addressing the needs of colonized peoples. They also, for example, in many cases, the railroads were actually constructed, of course, by the colonized for the colonizer to transport weapons. So they went like like goods to build things for colonizers. So it wasn't even it wasn't like a colonized person could get on a, a train and go to wherever they want. These these this infrastructure was specifically related to war and violence that was being committed against colonized peoples. So it's not this this myth about like 
without the colonizer, colonized peoples would never advance is, is garbage, but it's also like just completely ahistorical in terms of the use of this, this infrastructure. It's like, it literally wasn't built for them and they didn't have access to it in like 99.9% of the cases. Um, and it's also just like on a moral level, um, insulting and, and wrong <laughs> to say that, to make the assumption that colonized peoples couldn't or wouldn't have come up with their own innovations that may have been, may have exceeded what the colonizers brought, quote unquote, imposed technically onto them, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I think it's, I don't know, it's just, it, it's, it's all, it is a bit overwhelming, I guess, you know, it, it, it feels a bit overwhelming. And uh, like we talked about it at the top that it, it doesn't, there wasn't a lot of uh, optimism left as I know we're we're not quite done but we're kind of trying to we're trying to be a little bit more concise for you and uh, sorry for my jumbledness but uh, I think the the nature of the text and I think really this is one where I think actually listening to us is actually kind of maybe easier and more digestible and uh more useful than the literal reading of a lot of the text though i still uh, suggest that people read it if they have the time and the opportunity but uh some of the the things that stuck out towards uh, the end of the text and leading off of that uh, was there's also an aspect of how this process this colonial relationship prevents the realization of uh, kind of manhood and this it's kind of, I guess, I don't know, I don't want to maybe chauvinistic, but uh, it's very male or everything's in the male uh, uh, text or kind of phrasing and everything. It's always he, 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 we might've sometimes used they or people or whatever to out of our own habits, but in the text, it's always he. So like maybe it plays some of that, but the, the realization of becoming a man and becoming fully human uh, is prevented not only just for the colonized, but also there's an aspect of this colonial relationship that uh, kind of in, uh, infantilizes or turns them into like kind of uh, makes them into children, uh, the the men of the colonizers. And so uh, that was part that stuck out to me, if I can find what I had noted there. But uh, essentially what I remember is that I mean, one of the things that re sticks out to me is the 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 from the first part of the how the colonial relationship celebrate the celebration of mediocrity within the the colonial relationship for the colonizer, in that uh, people that the colonizers are typically mediocre people that are escaping the colony and their so their glory in the colony is based off of their uh, the subjugation of the colonized and that because of that relationship they they're not required to and they and and therefore don't as part of part of the argument uh become realize that full man and i think one of the things the themes that i've realized through this uh my learning of uh, from all these texts and just uh experiencing political realities in life is we have to find arguments and appeals that will 
have an effect and be convincing, not just uh, among colonized people, but uh, among various colonizers, or at least make them hesitant or to question or cause inter inner turmoil, something to undermine and weaken the the colonial relationship and the the security that both sides of the relationship find in the status quo albeit tenuous much more tenuous for one side of that relationship than the other yeah and i don't know what that answer is not yet i'm trying i feel like i'm some of the i mean his his book unfortunately doesn't really offer that answer mm -hmm. right um because he i think i mean as he says to kind of transition to the conclusion in the conclusion he's basically just like look i don't have answers I'm just telling it like it is, right? He kind mm -hmm. of, he kind of, I mean, he does not kind of, he literally is like, this is what it is. I'm explaining a situation. I'm explaining a way of thinking. I'm explaining a way of interacting and the symbiotic relationship between these people with immense amounts of power and the people that they oppress. This is the third time I've read it. And I think that there's, I think this time when I read it, it felt more difficult for me to read. I think only because I was comparing it to other stuff we had read for the Reading Revolution series that were a little mm -hmm. bit more straightforward. And I think this book reads more like sometimes like a short story or a poem. And it's very like, like, um, especially this, the second part of it, I think. Yeah, for sure. It's more like prose. It's more like art. I mean, I guess mm -hmm. it's the best. Way. It's more artistic, I think. And so sometimes I want to like slow down and really digest what he's saying because there's so much symbolism in everything he says, which I think is what makes it a powerful read. So like, I definitely agree if you do have time to go back and or to go and read it, if you haven't already read it, definitely do it. It's not very long. Um, and you can obviously read it in two parts. <laughs> it's like pretty, <laughs> it has like, you know, subheadings and everything that make it pretty easy to follow along and clear, um, which is helpful. But I think that it definitely has a more artistic flair to it. It reads more like a poem or some sort of um, more artistic. But I think that that also makes the work so much more powerful because mm -hmm. everything has all these layers to it. Um, and then when you read this book and you learn as you're like kind of building on what body of knowledge that you have if you're reading this book and then you're thinking about police brutality you're reading this book and you're thinking about what the u.s is doing in xyz country you're reading this and you're thinking about the situation in in palestine um you're reading this and you're reflecting on historical um situations you know i think it aids in our understanding of how these sorts of structures are created and maintained and in a way that's like artistic and and clear i think to follow. I think the other there's thing also, I, just quickly, I'm just sorry. an aspect of when you like when you rewatch a series that you haven't watched in a while, you mm -hmm. can you remember some things, you don't remember some things, but then it also gives you an opportunity to pay attention to things that you might have missed before. And so oh, that's, for sure. that's one of the values I've, I definitely got from my re -inter interactions, although they were relatively short periods in between. Mm -hmm. I think the last thing I just wanted to add um, related to what you said before not not just the mm. conclusion stuff, but this is from so this part that I'm going to talk about is from the conclusion, but relates very much to what you were talking about with regard to this reiteration of the mediocrity of the colonizer that I very much appreciate because I'm like we need to talk. There's there's been a lot of stuff about like white tears and like white guilt and I think white um you know like like white uh what is it white fragility right? mm -hmm. which I think sometimes are flawed flawed ways of thinking of our relationship with um people with 
she could say like racial and socioeconomic power. There's some issues I have with that framing. But I think one of the things that he talks about is this idea of like the media, the mediocrity of the colonizer is I think an important framing because it helps us understand the ways that privilege works and the way that socioeconomic and social power work. Um, because it literally does put it in kind of a, it's like what we were talking about earlier off air, kind of the black tax, you know? So like I'm working Mm -hmm. 150%, I'm putting in way more than you, like time, effort, everything, but then you're succeeding more because you have the connections and you're succeeding more because you have, you look like you look, or you come from the family that you do, even though your skills and your intelligence might be like less than mine on a normal measuring system, you know, a scale. Um, and there's even, there was an article that came out a few weeks ago, um, about this actually, that like they said, you know, wealthy people are taken more seriously and like what they say is valued more and they tend to succeed because they kind of know how to lie basically. Like they know how to play the game more, um, in interviews and things like that. They can fake, um, excellence, if you will, in ways Mm -hmm. that poor people are generally second guessing themselves and not, they cannot exude the same level of confidence. And I think that like, if we put this in racial terms, because if we look at the United States and we say black people and indigenous people are disproportionately poor, Latinos are disproportionately poor compared to their white counterparts in the country, then that, I think it like tracks onto you know, the way that we live our lives and like who can fake it until they make it and who doesn't necessarily have that advantage. Um, But there's a part in the conclusion about that that I thought was excellent. And this is also interesting because this is when he brings up women finally, um, for better or for worse. Because as you mentioned, everything's like he, 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 he. And then at the end, at the very end, he's like, oh, by the way, women, yeah, they're the ones who exhibit all this like brainwashed colonial behavior (laughs) you know like and Fanon does this too like Fanon Uh, does this constantly it makes me crazy I love both of these guys but sometimes I'm like yo you have issues with women um but but um he says uh, this is like 165 164 he's talking about the fact that like the colonized person wears their oppression on their skin which I thought I mean it reminded me a lot Fanon too, which we'll read eventually and talk about. Um, but he talks about the fact that, you know, what have, what can be said of like black women who straighten their hair and no oh, matter. Yeah. And then he goes on to say, he mentions women again when he's talking about uh, mediocrity. And he says in the middle of 165, love of the colonizer is subtended by a complex of feelings ranging from shame to self-hate. The extremism in that submission to the model is is already revealing. A blonde woman, be she dull or anything else, <laughs> appears <laughs> superior to any brunette. A product manufactured by the colonizer is accepted with confidence. His habits, clothing, food, architecture are closely copied, even if inappropriate. A mixed marriage is the extreme expression of this audacious leap. So basically he's like, you can look like, any kind of way and you're going to be considered beautiful if you're blonde or white or you know what i'm saying like this idea mm-hmm. that like you don't even have to try you just have to exist and everybody's going to be falling over themselves to get to you everyone's going to want your products everyone's going to you know if you're an example if you're a quintessential embodiment of the colonizer we want to be you no matter how much it takes no matter how desperate it makes us look and i think that goes back into your discussion about mediocrity quite a bit because it's like and I, and I see this like if you think about any any 
media that we consume. I mean, this is still a problem. Like mm-hmm. we're getting better. There's more diversity in film. It's still like if I, when I I was thinking today, I was like, how many TV shows are there out there where the main character, if she's a black woman, if she has darker skin, there are like two that I can think of, and they're both by Shonda Rhimes. Um, mm-hmm. I cannot think of any other shows. Like not, I'm not, I'm not talking about reality shows, but just like like dramas or comedies on TV where like the main character is a dark skinned black woman. It's like besides besides scandal maybe and uh, how to get away with murder. Those are the only two that come to mind on like a main television network at a prime time, you know, hour. Yeah, and it's definitely like part of the show. Like you know, it's Mm -hmm. like that's like it's. It's part of the, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's part of the narrative in a way that it's not normalized, right? Yeah, like she's exactly. not just herself. It's just like every day reminding you, oh, I'm a, I'm a this and I'm a that, and like I symbolize this, and you're like, okay, can you just like be a person? Like, can we just have a normalization of like having a black female main character that has dark skin that's just like normal, like any other? I mean, I, there was a someone had said something like. The moment when you start seeing like Lupita Nyong'o in like a random romantic comedy as the main character, then we can talk about like fair representation or whatever. But she's always playing like a slave or an app. She's she plays she was a slave and then she was in like uh, Black oh, uh, Panther mm-hmm. is a Wakandan warrior or whatever. Mm-hmm. But she generally plays and they're, they're good roles. I'm not I'm not taking anything away from from Lupita Nyong'o she's an amazing actress but it's rare that you see her in just like a generic ass role that you would see typically a white woman in because they're the default you know so yeah I think that this 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 conclusion is just kind of like (sighs) yeah well I mean uh, like one of the things that came out of the that conclusion section or well, one of the things before you just talked about that came to my mind is, you know, uh, like Elvis and Chuck Berry and how despite like any like no matter the, how mediocre this this in this case, the, the white, blonde, blue eyed thing uh, and in the case of music, uh, like they can be mediocre and they can be stealing something that's supposed to be inferior being the colonized people's uh, culture or, or work or cre- art- artistic creation. And simply mm-hmm. because it's being presented in a, uh, in a way that the colonize from somebody that the colonizer approves of, uh, it ends up being more widely accepted. And so you get like, not only can, does uh, more mediocre work get celebrated, but, uh, stolen media like stolen mm-hmm. work that's done mediocrely gets celebrated more than the <laughs> the quality work that the original that that it was that inspired it or it was stolen right. from however you want to articulate it right like not only are you copying but you're also like an inferior copy of the original it's just like right. a bad counterfeit you know like if you get a if you get like a fake bag like a fake Louis Vuitton or something and like it says MC instead of LV and it has some holes in it that's like but, the state of But media. then you do know then you do better numbers than the actual bag. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, wait a minute. Yeah, and that, that's that's actually happened funny enough. Like I know that there were sometimes there were like more sales of fakes than than the originals in many cases. They were like doing better on them making more money <laughs> than the actual original designers. Who probably uh, stole their idea anyway, so let's not give them that much credit. But, uh, yeah, um, right. 
Well, you know, if or it's like, a colonized person I, getting a piece of it, well, you know, at least you got your right, piece. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with like the counterfeiters getting more mm-hmm. than the people who are like using slave labor to make their, their purses. <laughs> right. It's, fine. <laughs> um, it's not easy work counterfeiting. I mean, not that I know. No. <laughs> not that I know. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Off the record. Yeah, no. Don't don't at yeah. me, FBI. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man, I got tagged by the FBI. That's one of the re- or not by the FBI, but somebody like got in a Twitter beef with me or whatever and called like tried to tag the FBI in. I was like, I need oh, to get yeah. off Twitter. Don't, don't tag the FBI into our mentions, please. That's not nice. Okay, You're, this is like a real life or death situation for some of us. Right. Like I'm, I was like black identity extremists, and it's like I mean right. I like. We know about COINTELPRO. We don't need any of that in nobody's <laughs> life. We got Ferguson protesters dropping like flies. It is a mess out here, people. So, yeah. like, I, 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 I'm one of the people that deals with the drastic and uh, devastating situations through humor and some like it's not appropriate for everybody. And so, like, <laughs> just so people know, I'm not making light of a situation in that way. It's just it like laugh through the tears sort of thing for me personally. And so, like, it's it, it is really dangerous out here like people are putting themselves at risk and people doing far more than i am than i could ever say i am and putting far more out there and so it like in the essence from our text to relate it back to our text there are people who haven't given up on the idea of uh you know not acquiescing to the system and finding a comfortable way to exist in it but instead uh over like recognizing that neither the colonizer or the colonized can be fully human uh, in a colonial relationship that it it's debilitating for both of uh, for both parties and it's in humanity's interest to destroy the colonial relationship which is the only way uh, as Mammy puts it for us to make that realization mm-hmm. i think one last thing i just wanted to bring out from the conclusion Mm -hmm. before we ourselves conclude is this idea that he talks about like of overcorrecting he says Mm -hmm. he calls it a counter mythology which i think is like also really important for us to talk about um because we see this a lot in most revolutionary movements uh we kind of discussed this when we talked about freire's pedagogy of the oppressed as well about like how we have to be careful when we're not not me and you personally, but like a collective of people are countering a hegemonic institution or um, way of life and trying to challenge it through rhetoric and sometimes armed struggle. With that, there also becomes a myth-making of um, the identity of the oppressed and what that looks like. And sometimes that involves like marginalizing people within that group, especially like women, LGBTQ, et cetera. Um, but there's also an idea of like, he says basically that you're taking the negative myth that's from the colonizer and then you're trying to correct it with a positive myth as opposed to this negative one. But it gets to the point where like everything about your group is good when there may sometimes be negative things that need to be addressed. Um, and so it then becomes a way of like papering over internal issues that need to be dealt with. Um, and it, it involves a type of historical myth-making as well. And so I think it, it's, a, it's a good like reminder, engaging your oppression, but don't try to overcorrect to the point where you're ignoring what might be new forms of oppression that are emerging or that might be like 
I mean, a good example of this, for example, are um, sometimes the people who talk about African history, but they overlook the act of enslavement. They overlook, you know, like the, the entire er- epic of slavery, both Arab slavery and slavery in the Americas through the triangle trade. I mean, there's, there's sometimes um, people who want to talk about like, quote unquote, kings and queens and stuff, but don't want to talk about struggle. And so I think that he's kind of pointing to this habit sometimes of, of trying to, again, overcorrect what the wrongs were, but, but by then relying on mythologies that, that don't actually help the oppressed group free itself um, mentally and like psychologically from, from some of these things. I think those are excellent, excellent points to capture and to, to remind us of. And I, I think uh, something that we can all, you know, be more mindful of uh, in general and like uh, find and and if we if nothing leaps out to us as uh, as sticking or fitting that that perhaps uh, a bit more looking uh, is 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 due in just that in if we look if we probe deeper into our own perspective if we if we look for those types of ideas if we find if when we find if and when we find them then we can confront them and we can deal with them but if we don't if we don't look and we just presume that they're not there then they can linger and reside and and grow and and all sorts of other get worse and and all sorts of other negative aspects and also be aware of uh one of the things that i remembered in there is just in that i I mentioned, but I just want to re- reiterate is then how we can internalize these myths, both positive and negative, uh, or the overcorrections and the the ones imbued in, onto us by colonizers as colonized peoples uh, mm-hmm. a variety of different experiences uh, that we, in counteracting them, that we don't go too far and that we also don't accept ones that uh, that may seem superficially beneficial or uh, beneficial in the short term or w- under the context or framing of the colonial relationship, but in a in the pursuit of reaching our fullest humanity, actually don't and bring a cl- bring us closer to those goals. So sometimes that's economic su- things that lead to economic success or or re- or are celebrated within our own communities at times. Mm-hmm. It's also a kind of a reminder that it's okay to be imperfect, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's almost like, I mean, I think he, we wouldn't have called it this necessarily at the time that phrase came out later, but like respectability politics, you know? So how mm-hmm. do we, in trying to overcorrect for negative myths about us that are created by the colonizers, how do we then also reiterate some of the power structures, at least on a rhetorical level, but then that trickle down into like, like a social caste level, right? Of who's acceptable, who are acceptable members of the community and who are not, you know? And so we have to be mm-hmm. careful about doing that, like as well, like kind of re reestablishing some of the same dichotomies of good and evil and, and acceptable and unacceptable within our community as we're trying to gain freedom. So. I think that definitely relates to some of our previous texts as well. Uh, I remember some of our uh, discussions on propaganda and about how we can't fall into using the same types of rhetorical tricks that the in that that te- in those texts, you know, the oppressors or uh, you know, yeah, the oppressors or some various variation of that 
we yeah. can't we can't imitate the bourgeoisie and imitate those types of the oligarchical like positions and the establishments of those hegemonic myths to establish our own better ones it's about uh not just replace it's about replacing the mythology mm-hmm. with, with substantive and real uh, critique thought ideas and policy and so that's what i think is important and uh, i think a theme that we see throughout our texts and when i see themes that are reoccurring throughout our texts and whether and especially when it's a text that you select and a text i select and back and forth i i take note of that and and think about well what's different about each one what are the commonalities and how how do they apply to my personal situation and uh, more generically in the modern situation that we face that we face and uh, i think a lot of the things that you talked about today are uh, both when I read them and then when you articulated them the, the way that you did also helped me reflect on a lot of what I've learned, uh, both from this particular text and then from what we've been covering thus far. And so uh, moving forward, I feel better prepared. And I'm glad that we came across this text when we did, because had I not had some of uh, the the knowledges or the knowledge and the information that I had, it might not have been as uh, bearable to get through some of all the negativity stuff that we talked about. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Cause it is, it's heavy. Like it's not, you know, I mean, I, I think too, that just having these kinds of discussions is helpful because sometimes, I mean, there, we have listeners of all different age groups, right? Um, we have predominantly younger listeners, but there are also listeners who like, for example, might be younger, but mm-hmm. they're in STEM, for example, and they never get to talk about this sort of stuff or like they have to rush through it because they have a chem lab exam or whatever, you know, like they don't really get to um, enjoy mm-hmm. it and like hash out some of the more complicated issues within the text. And so like, I appreciate the listeners as well for like engaging in this and like being patient enough to go through these texts with us in a lot of ways. Um, because we do what we can to clearly articulate what the author is saying. Um, but, you know, like we're not perfect and we're not the author. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes it, I think, though, it helps for us to be clearer and then make it more palatable and like easy to digest for people who, are, who maybe don't have the time or don't have the opportunity right now to read the book. Um, or but but I do think that these what's so what keeps coming up for me every time I read these texts in preparation for reading revolution is just like how relevant they still are. And I think mm. that's powerful too. Like we're reading texts that are from like the mid 20th century. So like 1940s, 1950s, we have some stuff that we're going to read that's from much earlier than that. We have stuff that, that we've read that like came out last year, you know, like they we're kind of all over the map in terms of time period and it's all so relevant. And I think that's, what's, on the one hand can be really disappointing because you're like, oh my God, like people were saying this years ago and they're still dealing with this problem. Like, how are we still here? You know, as I was really hoping when I told them they were all going to be like, oh, that's what we didn't know. No, but it's also hopeful because it's like, okay, you're not alone in thinking this way. You're not alone in like facing this challenge. And these are some of the methods that, people were proposing to like tackle these issues back then that we can build on, you know, like, I think Mm -hmm. that's why that's, that's the lesson that I get out of it. Like, how can I look at this and say, okay, this part I agree with this part is maybe has changed. This part is something that we should employ right now. If we want to see a shift, you know, 
I think it's useful in that sense. And I think it's useful for helping us, um, I hope, move forward in a lot of ways. And I don't mean that just rhetorically. Like, I'm not just saying, oh, I read a book and therefore I'm changing the world, you know, <laughs> like, but it also helps, helps me, like, become, you know, I want to be a professor. So it like helps me think about better ways to articulate certain ideas. It helps me relate better to people. I think it also helps me think of ways like how I want to live my own life and like how I want to engage with other people and maybe mm -hmm. what kind of movements I want to be involved in and ideology I want to possess, you know. Yeah. And I'm planning for change. I mean, sometimes I get a little uh, pessimistic with uh, the climate a catastrophe on the horizon but uh, i also like uh, i try to also kind of temper my perspective with realism and that like i don't have to uh solve every problem myself or you know be a part of every movement or you know every group or anything like that that it's okay for me to just help leave a little something more uh to for the next person to help build on you know like i'm i'm taking the work of, you know, so many great people and uh, collab collaborating and uh, coagulating them in ways and kind of uh, processing them and, and having my own little piece of the dialogue, my own little participation. And uh, I think that if people recognize that that's a valuable contribution and that it can, when tempered with, you know, being informed, through theory and through uh, the other things or through experience and or through just a genuine desire for dialogue rather than uh you know more superficial or petty argument type stuff that seeing the value that we all possess in and can bring to a dialogue uh means that we don't have to solve everything we don't have to fix everything we don't have to you know try to lead a revolution in order to be helpful and be progressing and moving our cause forward and that's kind of a bit of it, it it kind of provides a bit of a sigh of relief for me yeah um i think that there's what you just said also made me think about a lot of the stuff that we read from uh, mariella and especially because he he emphasized like in the in the mini manual of the urban guerrilla that there's like you have to be kind of your own revolution right like you start with yourself first like everything that even though even though all of these like little tiny groups were like connecting and coming together at some point there's also got to be a revolution inside of you first and you have to prepare yourself first um before you can do anything. And I think a lot of the people we've read have actually emphasized that, like even our discussion about Hampton, our readings of Freire, you know, this is there, there's this idea of like internally first, you need to have, you need to be engaging both theory and action, right? Like you can't just have a bunch of reading and then, or you can't just go do stuff without like thinking about things first and reading things first and understanding what's going on first, having a, a way of assessing what's happening first. Um, and I think that, in some ways, this is also where, like I said, where I see Mariela coming in because he was mm -hmm. like, you got to train. You can't necessarily trust everybody. You can work with some people, but like you are a kind of one man army. And I think sometimes it can feel overwhelming to hear mm -hmm. that. But it's also like if you if you then think about the fact that like you're a one man or woman or like non gender conforming person army that you're going to be linking up with other people to do something, right? So every person has their particular purpose in this larger framework. 
And I think sometimes we get bogged down because we think we have to do so much that it can be overwhelming. And so like Mark says, for, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, right? It's like, get in where you fit in, like do what you can do and go from there. You can't do everything, right? Mm-hmm. But like what you can contribute is important because it helps make up for something that maybe someone else can't do or like doesn't have the time to do or doesn't have the ability right now to do. Like everybody can kind of like fit into this machine, if you will, of revolution together. It's not just, it's like each each man or woman or person has to work on their own and make themselves better and more prepared. And then when they come together, it's like even more powerful. So that's where that's where I see the value in doing something like this um, and mm-hmm. continuing to learn through this process. Cause like every time we have an episode like this, I'm learning too. like, I'm reading new stuff. I'm, I'm rethinking about things I have already read and yeah, I like it. So thanks so much for being on this journey with us guys. <laughs> yes, exactly what I was thinking. I was like, thank everyone for like helping to make this possible for like listening, for joining us, uh, for being patrons, for sharing, liking, and you know, following all of those things, like even those little things, they do help. And then like, I'm not going to like, you know, uh, you know, like over, oversell it, but like the, not everybody is ready to, you know, like I, I mentioned uh, before in previous episodes that uh, the Hampton quote, you know, why don't you live for the people and fight for the people why don't you die for the people is like, I was on board for living for the people and I was on board fighting for the people, but I, it took me a while to get to dying for the people and understanding what that meant and why, what he was saying with that and, and all that. And so not everybody's ready to go full revolution right away. And so it's, it's okay to start somewhere. And if starting somewhere is just liking or telling one person that you know about uh, this podcast or another podcast that you like, that had something in, or just sharing a little clip from it or whatever it may be. All those things are part of what we need to do in order to make the progress we need. And again, you know, my climate fatalism and everything is like the sooner the better. So I do appreciate, appreciate it all. And, and we'll keep doing what we can to keep giving uh, all of you uh, is uh, all of us that we can all as much of us as we can. And, uh, and we will be appreciative for everything all of you were able to give back. Yes. So on that note, I just want to say thanks again. And uh, yeah, check back with us. We're going to be doing more reading revolutions, of course, in the near future. We have some exciting new changes happening with the podcast and the project. So I'll be sure to announce those soon. And um, yeah, thanks for spending this time with us. And I hope that you all enjoyed this reading revolution. And so thanks again. Bye. Bye. Once again, thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. You can find more about the podcast by basically searching Left POC anywhere. And that's Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Spreaker, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and now YouTube. You get the idea. Anyway, feel free to get in touch with us, listen to the podcast, check out the project, and learn more. And be sure, of course, to follow us on Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc, where all of our content is free, but we would love if you could donate a dollar or more to keep the project running. Thanks again, and have a good one.